This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Simon Hempel is a partner at Leaders Quest, a social enterprise that works with leaders to create a more equitable and sustainable world by challenging them to explore purpose and create positive change. Simon spent the 90s into the new century as a serial entrepreneur, building companies in Europe, the U.S., and Canada in the fields of financial services, leisure, consultancy, and technology. Leaving these ventures behind, in 2002, he joined an Amazonian exploration, which ultimately resulted in four years doing scientific research and aid work in the Amazon, across the Himalayas, through Mongolia, and down Ethiopia's Blue Nile. In 2006, he became the CEO of Right to Sight, an international NGO, and worked on developing sustainable eye care projects while living in Africa and India. Simon has spent his time since 2010 exploring how to combine profit with purpose, people, and the planet. In addition to his role at Leaders Quest, he's a partner at the Global Leaders Academy and is on the advisory board of the Ministry of Entrepreneurship. He's an associate at Positive Group, sits on the advisory board of the Do School in Germany, and is an ambassador for Enbercrombie. I spoke with Simon in London. Hello, Simon. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thanks, Stephen. Delighted to join you. Great to be here. Simon, you are something of a serial social entrepreneur and leadership development expert. You have quite an eclectic portfolio of organizations that you work with right now. I found you through Leaders Quest, um, and that was the introduction that we had to you. But why don't you tell us initially about all of the types of organizations you work with and, and sort of where your professional focus is? Sure. So, yes, Leaders Quest, very much my anchor and my joy, I'd say. And, you know, it takes up the vast majority of my time. And it's a social enterprise non-for-profit based here in the UK, where I'm speaking to you from, in London. But we also have offices in New York and Mumbai. And we've been going about 15 years. And we have about, gosh, 60 to 70 odd people that work with us, uh, half of whom are full-time, half are part-time. And we are very much involved in this conversation around leadership and around helping people grow a sense of wisdom and compassion in leadership, hoping people make sense of incredibly complicated times that we live in, the real sort of disruption that we're seeing across all the breadth and depth of what we do. Um, and we do it through experiential work, so we often take people away uh, to parts of the world where challenges are happening, things are going on, and we meet fellow leaders, people who are having the same conversation and we invite them to share what's happening so we learn together. Because our sense of growth, our sense of how people expand their awareness, their meaning-making, their perspective on life is around experience. And that only comes from, from as I say, meeting people where they're at. I love it. It's, it's a fabulous opportunity. We work with individuals who are leading large organizations and NGOs and social enterprises, politics and religion. But we also work with organizations as a whole, going into the senior management teams from board down, and we work in systems now. We've, we've been doing some interesting work recently around food loss. You know, the amount of food that we lose in the world between harvest and plate is terrifying with all these trends, you know, growing population, climate change, soil erosion, water loss. Uh, we're also doing work now uh, around the investment community and banking and looking at the future of banking with a number of partners. You know, we see ourselves comfortably sitting in each of those levels of conversations, so individual, organizational, and, and strategic, or the, the, the systems, because ultimately we convene conversations. We're like a catalyst for change, and we take people on a journey of transformation. 
I want to dive a little deeper right there. Just now that you've yeah. now that you've introduced Leaders Quest. First, tell me what what does wisdom and compassion mean for you with, with leadership? You know, I, I want to I want to unpack that a little bit. How does that how does that play out when in not only the services you deliver, but what you see when you take a leader from London or a big city or somewhere and bring them maybe to the developing world or something like that? How, how does that play out? There's a lovely Rumi quote, Stephen. Yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world, and today I'm wise and I'm changing myself. And that's, I think, the essence for us. It's helping people recognize that whatever they wish to see of the world starts from within. And if we're prepared to go there and ask ourselves those questions, then we have the opportunity of asking others and helping to shift and create transformational change. So that's what we do. And we do it in a variety of ways. Our sense of wisdom and compassion, look look at the world today. It seems to us that we're getting very, very clever Look at the exponential growth of nanotechnology and robotics and AI and, of course, Moore's Law and the chips that you see expanding every couple of years. It's doubling our capacity. So we're brilliant, but are we being wise with the use of that? Are we serving? Are we helping? Are we nurturing and supporting each other and our and our world? And our sense is not really. And so it's not to say that cleverness isn't important, but it's to say how can we try and bring it into balance with the wisdom that that we seek to serve, to lead, to show direction uh, for everyone. And and for us, compassion is the piece or a piece in that puzzle that links it because compassion is about connection. It's about a sense of putting yourself into the shoes of the other, the perspective, really understanding where the individual maybe more than an individual, is coming from. And if you can create that connection and if you can create that sense of relationship, so you've got a greater opportunity of then doing more, whatever that is, whatever your sense of purpose, deeper purpose, higher purpose is. So compassion is a large piece of the puzzle. And again, going back to what I said at the beginning here, are we compassionate of and to ourselves as much as others? And what does that look like? Do you find that, you know, what you're talking about does not resonate necessarily with what you're going to see on Forbes or the Wall Street Journal and these kinds of things about leadership when the stuff coming out of Harvard, right? It might in, in some of the, some cases, but when you go and you talk to some of your clients and I see on your website, Cargill, Procter & Gamble, some of these large organizations, and you're speaking with leadership, do you find that you make an instant connection with, with this type of perspective or does it take some convincing? You know, of course, because we work at so many different layers, I think with individuals, they're often self-selecting. So they come to find us because they're on their own journey. And it's therefore an easier mm-hmm. conversation to have because there's a, a sense of acceptance that this is the conversation that we're going to have. And when, and when we do our work, there's sort of three layers. Maybe I should just describe that as well. There's a, a, a sort of macro conversation about the world we live in and, and, and seeing it for what it is and then reflecting back, what does that mean for me and what I do in the world? And then there's a second conversation about what does it mean to be a leader today and beyond the short term, whether it be profit or thinking and, and you know, what is my sense of purpose alongside leadership? And there's a third level, which is much more inside of ourselves, which is who am I and why am I here? Now, individuals know that when they work with us. And so, yes, the conversations are reasonably easy to have. And of course, it's not as if we have all the answers. We're just asking the questions. And I think that's part of our skill, really, is recognizing that we don't know the answers. And so often we all fall to answers too quickly. And if we can keep the conversation sitting with the question and create that gap, there's a lovely Viktor Frankl, you probably read Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, beautiful book, he writes a little bit, I won't get the exact words, but the essence is something like, in between stimulus and response, there lies a gap. 
And in that gap is our destiny and our freedom. And when I share that with people, I think you get a sort of, you see occasionally lights going on. I'm going, yes, I need to create the gap for a different choice. And the reason I say that, Stephen, is that when I go into organizations where not everyone wants us to be there, we may have been invited in by the chief exec or the chairman or a couple of board directors, but there'll be others there who'll be cynical or, or at least, you know, uncertain and unsure about what we're doing. Those types of conversations, that recognition of the gap and the opportunity that can come from that to do things differently usually excites people. In fact, I would say you more than usually, it excites people. And, and remember, we're going into very safe conversations. We're not particularly talking about it as to who they are and what they're saying. It's private. It's trusted. Um, I mean, I've had a number of very senior executives and boards sit with me and meditate. They're very interested in mindfulness, another thing of what we bring into the world. And I believe that lots of us, in fact, everyone, I'm struck by how many people I work with at every level of society, ultimately is thoughtful about their role in the world and really wants it to be meaningful and really wants the world to be in a better place and, and to sort of have a sense of joy and excitement and energy about what they do. It's very rare to find someone who doesn't align with that. It's just recognizing that what they're in, the organizational system that may not allow that in its current form. Mm. And often then it's a sense of them expressing that and just being able to share, gosh, finally I can talk to someone. Finally, we can actually have this conversation, even if it is behind closed doors. And of course, from that, so leads on further and deeper conversations. You've had a unique journey, obviously, as everybody has, but a unique perspective, I think, from commercial success in your younger days in the IT business to deep Amazonian you know, quests uh, and, and then NGO work. And now you're, you're sort of back in the UK. You know, I've just you know, condensed your your CV, I know, to, to two sentences. But what I'm trying to say is you, you broad portfolio experience, and I know that you bring people from the commercial world into the developing world, et cetera. And I'm, one of the things you said is that you help look at how, you know, how do you catalyze change? How do you, you know, look for this, this sort of evolution? From where you sit, how is innovation happening in that developing world setting when you bring people there to help them have leader experiences or when you've worked uh, with NGOs and those uh, you know, organizations that are focused on aid and development. Are we still mostly trying to be clever, or do you see another way that it's happening now? Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I see it at all levels, both cleverness and wisdom. Uh, it's it's across the world. I'm very struck again by, by how many people I meet in challenging parts of the world who have very little resource. They don't have material goods that we do here. They don't have the infrastructure and the support. They don't have the technology. But they have a vision, they have a passion, they have energy and drive. Uh, and so often, um, you know, I'm on the board of a couple of schools of social entrepreneurship in here in the UK and, and Europe. And one of the things I'm always asked is, well, how do I raise money to do this? And, and then I go and elsewhere in the world, and of course, they, they can't get hold of money, so they've got to start without that. And that allows people to both be clever, because they've got to be in, uh, got to be able to find a different path. But it also allows them to think more deeply about the purpose of what they're doing. So I find them sort of working hand in glove, actually. In fact, funny enough, I would say often the, the cleverness is more likely to be closer to home, where the resources are much more abundant. And when they're scarcer, then you need to rely upon things like your community. You need to engage in what their needs are in order to build what it is you're building. Well, if you're doing that, the wisdom comes through because you recognize what's happening on the ground. And, and I often think it would be a wonderful thing to do to take so many of the 
senior people I work with here and actually go and sit with these organizations and individuals elsewhere in the world, across Africa and India, where I, where I spend a lot of time and showcase the amazing things they've done with so little and what's possible from that position. Is there a formula for developing a, a wise leader that you've, you know, you've, you've talked about how you sort of have three levels that you look at when you, when you work with people, you, you've interacted with a number of different, in, in different levels of the organization, but is there sort of a, a time when someone's ripe for this kind of catalyst or this change, or is there a time when they sort of, is, does it just happen, you know, a light bulb goes on or is there a moment that you can see in someone's career path or an organizational development path where you could say, yeah, it's time for us to step in and help them? Your first question, I will answer immediately with the, uh, the lovely gentleman called D.R. Mehta, amazing gentleman who runs Jaipur Foot in India. And they've, I think, given away something like a million prosthetic limbs in the last 30 years. Incredible NGO. And, and we're big fans and, and supporters of D.R. Mehta. And he, I remember him saying to me a few years ago when I first met him, he said, Simon, the equation to life is simple. It's E equals MC squared. And I said, well, I know that equation. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. Not, not what you imagine. He said, E is energy equals M, which is money, and C, which is compassion. So energy equals money times compassion squared. Isn't that a lovely thought? And with that, he felt we could do anything and, and everything, uh, but in the, in the sense of service and support for what the world needs rather than just for selfishness in ourselves. And of course, he is very much an example of that with, with his Jaipur Foot organization. So there you are. There's an equation, um, which I do think about quite a lot and I often talk about with others. Going to put that on our and website with... immediately. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. And then the other thing that um, when you ask about are people, when are they ripe for this and when does it like, the light go, bulb go on? You know, I, I'm interested. I, I spent a couple of months, can you believe, a few years ago in a Zen uh, community doing a, about eight hours of meditation a day. I'd never done anything like this in my life. I kept meeting quite wise people and someone said, come on, you should come and do a bit of this. And I, I did a, in, in the sort of couple of months I was there, I had about a month's worth of silence, but not continuous, you know, sort of seven days here and four days there. And I found it very challenging. It really was, you know, so much going on in my head, the noise, and it wasn't as if, you know, when you talk about silence, I didn't feel silent. <laughs> but gradually I got into it. And it's a, it's a practice that I develop, which I still, to this day, do every day. I find it incredibly helpful to create that space for myself where I think the great things come through. Um, to your point about creativity earlier on, I think there's so much inside of ourselves if we can help the noise abate. But what I also recognize in that journey for myself is that the Eastern tradition has been talking about this sense of wisdom for a long time. And what Western science has been doing in the last 20 years around neuroscience and, and other levels of it is begin to identify in its own vocabulary and language. So if we look at, at individuals, how do we grow? Well, we grow through knowledge in a sort of horizontal sense. We, we gain knowledge as we're at school and university. And then when we go into the workplace and we go on trainings and we're constantly learning knowledge. But at the same time, what we're observing and Leaders Quest is a good example of this is that people shift their level of awareness, consciousness, however you want to describe it, meaning-making, through experience. And there are very much layers. You could you could look at the work of people like Ken Wilbur and Spiral Dynamics with Beck, and, and you could think about others who were talking about vertical development and this idea that as we go through phases of life, so we begin to look at life in a different with a different set of spectacles on. And our awareness literally expands and grows or deepens, depending on how you how you imagine these things yourself. And so our center of gravity shifts at the same time. So what previously, maybe in my 20s, would have affected me and caught me and brought me into a sense of drama 
and problems actually doesn't land anymore because I've moved into a different place. It doesn't mean better or worse. It just means that I've moved. And that's what I observe in people as they grow as leaders, the sense that their observation and awareness of life shifts and expands beyond self. And in so doing, what previously had happened for them doesn't. And so they have an ability to look at life really in a very different way. And that's when light bulbs go on because suddenly people go, oh, I get it. I, I get it now. And then you sort of think, well, why didn't I get it before? Well, it's because we weren't in the place to do so. And it's lovely watching that happen. And it's, it's happened regularly for me in the last few years since, since I got back from India, which was 2010. That's part of my observation to answer your question, Stephen. It sounds like a gorgeous career you've got going on right now where you get to watch people have the aha moment all the time. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's so exciting. And, and of course, you know, frankly, in the challenges we have in the world today, I think terribly important. So really wonderful to be a part of. You get to work with a ton of social enterprises uh, as, as a part of your work. What are you most excited about right now? Is there one or two that you'd be able to give a shout out to or a, a, a particular vein of social enterprise innovation that, that, that you're most excited about right now? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm interested about how mainstream it's becoming. Of course, that's not the case in every country in the world. But here in the UK, you know, social enterprise is really establishing itself as a, as a more of a mainstream model. And you've got things like the B Corps coming in from the States now arriving and actually stamping their a sense of uh, identity on a variety of businesses, that's you know hugely important as well as far as credibility and governance and the depth of what social enterprise can do. But then these social impact funds that are growing, there's a plethora of new funds that have come into the UK, all of whom are looking at ways by which they can help grow social purpose. Private equities do the same. Um, so for me, there's a huge trend. It's not in every country in the world, but this trend of, of moving away from CSR as it's been known and saying, well, why can't we just embed that sense of what our CSR into us as an organization? And then, of course, you've got this, then you've got a, a sort of sliding view of, of social enterprise going from its sort of purest form all the way through into commercial business. And, and where do you sit in that equation? And, and frankly, I think organizations have a, an ability to choose. And some will be non-for-profit and some will be for-profit and some will be a percentage of return to shareholders and others that goes back in the business. Some will be you know, only having three levels of, of salary and some will have no bonuses and, and, and the like. I think that's probably the energy of the individuals who are part of the organization that should drive that choice. But my observation from sort of outside in is, is the momentum is taking CSR and embedding it into the, the breadth and depth of a business and then choosing to show up whilst being sustainable. And of course, that's key. And sustainable meaning that you have as much income coming in as you're spending so you can keep serving and doing and building as you wish. Mm. Is there a danger that you've seen either today or over the last couple of years of what would have been formerly known as greenwashing in CSR or, you know, the trap of being able to just put out your CSR report and talk about all of the good things you're doing, but having no accountability for it. Is there a danger of that happening right now with social enterprises, especially with maybe NGOs or some of the larger organizations say, saying, oh, yeah, we've been a social enterprise for the last 40 years because we do, you know, we've been working in India or we've been working in Kazakhstan or the flip of that where, you know, an organization like Procter & Gamble can say, well, of course, we've been delivering services for people in, you know, the most challenging countries in the world for our entire, you know, the history of our corporation. We're clearly a social enterprise. Does that question make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. I think it's a yes and. Uh, I, I'm sure people do use it for their own marketing. I'm sure there's a great cynicism. Of course, you know, it's human nature and that can be inside a large business and a small NGO. It depends on, on the individual and the individuals around it. I Having said that, I sort of see it as a slightly as a Trojan horse. I think once these things come in, 
it's hard to let you know the genie's out of the bottle. Now, it may be that it's done cynically for the first year or two or ten, but ultimately there's a momentum and direction of travel that organisations can't help but move towards. And I see that time and time again. And the surprise on executives' faces, they suddenly find themselves in a conversation around something that 10 years ago or five years ago, they would never have dreamed of having. And I, and I, I also think that I've met a number of very senior people in the financial services space, in the legal space, who were saying things to me like, we can't find people to work for us at the level we used to, because they sort of, they're not sure about the industry that we're in. They're not sure about them wanting to be be like us. And there's a great challenge around choices that we've made in the last 30 years as individuals. And, and a, a generation coming through now, however you want to describe them, millennials or whatever you want to say, who already have a sense of purpose often ingrained in who they are. And so they're beginning to see through whatever the, the facade of these organizations are and rightly question it. And, and I get that time and time again. So yes, there's bound to be a degree of that. It's human nature, but I don't worry about it. I, I just see it as an opportunity to challenge and ask the questions of that organization. And, and hold them to account. Mm. In sort of in that same line, is there a story you could share where uh, of, of your favorite fail, where you know either a social enterprise or an, a particular project or something uh, that you either worked with or you saw an organization initiate, it, it just didn't go anywhere, it didn't work. Well, when you say that, the first thing I think about is my own fails. I mean, I, I ran. <laughs> sure, talk about your own failures. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rather than saying everyone else has failed, I don't recognize that I've I very much. I mean, I, listen, I had four companies and I was in my 20s and 30s. Things were going terribly well. I had offices around the world and, and they weren't, they wouldn't say they were quick fails. They were actually, well, they failed quickly in the end because the market shifted and one of my, the bigger of the four businesses fell over and knocked the others over. And that was an incredibly difficult time because I'd vested so much of me in those organizations and it was how I defined myself. So in losing them, I found, you know, this huge gap. I didn't know what to do. And it took me a year or so to, to recover. I suppose what came from that, Stephen, as I'm thinking it through to your question, is I recovered in Spain. I ended up getting myself to Seville more by accident than design. And it was a lovely gift from the world to sort of look after me. And I worked on tables and taught English and just enjoyed sun and living on very small amounts of money and very humbly having had a huge amount of it before. But what I've discovered from it was a sense of trust that I will be okay, that somehow whatever happens, it will work out and I'll be all right. And so when I take that now into what I do, and of course there are instances of success and failure, whether they be clients that I'm working with and, and projects that I'm engaged with, that sense of trust makes it a very different approach to what we try and do because I'm not so fearful of the failure. As long as it's, it's been clearly articulated and spoken about, if it doesn't work, well, that's fine. We tried and we can honor that and move forward quickly. And we do that I mean, regularly in our in our programs, we're trying and experimenting with new things because we're trying to help create breakthrough and transformation. You can't do that by working the current paradigm. When you do, sometimes it, it just falls flat. People look at you and think, well, what was that all about? And you just got to sort of smile and go, I, I don't know, but I thought it was worth trying. Mm. And off you go and do it so again. So in social enterprise, does fail fast work outside of the tech business that you've found? Prototyping works. So so I think that there's a lovely man who I remember talking to me about transformational journeys and also helping to think about building new ideas and, and this sense of well, how, what's the process of doing that. And, I, and I'll just give you a flow of this process. Maybe it'll be something that people can, can uh, feel for themselves. That if we had a day of planning to do something, you know, let's, we're going to create a new product. How do we do that? Let's all come together. The team who are doing it come together. 
we're in a social enterprise, you know, we've only got a short period of time, how are we going to go about making a choice of what we do? Well, his advice would be half, at least half of that time should be spent on relationship because unless you in that group are in relationship successfully with each other, are really understanding the motivations, the values, the, the vision of what you have collectively and individually, you won't align to find the right way forward. So it literally is about relationship and you dive deeply into that and it has to be carefully handled and you know it's a challenge people aren't used to having these open conversations about themselves they divide business and personal lives keep them separate but you start with relational then from the relational you go into a sense of what's possible and you sort of scatter a large ball with all the possibilities of what's out there without worrying about whether they're good or bad ideas but what's possible totally freedom and then you align the values and the mission the vision of what you relationally have created the sort of essence of who you are against those possibilities and that gives you opportunities because only some of them will align to what you've decided you're about well from the opportunities you very quickly quickly can look at the priorities what is what are our priorities here based on the opportunities we can see and from that really it's a question of prototyping let's take one or two of those things and let's just try it a little bit here a little bit there and if you keep prototyping in that way you can really grow things quite quickly and of course if they fail they fail fast they fail without taking too much resource and time and money and you move into the next one you said, you know, at the, in, or at the beginning of our interview here that, you know, one of the things that you would love to do is to bring some of the leaders you work with from, let's call it the developing world, to some of these more challenging areas and say, hey, look, here's what they do without money. Yeah. What are some of the stories that you've seen of those, you know, those people that, that what are they doing without money that excites you so much that you think, you know, hey, I could take this to a large corporation and just say, here, you're worried about your billion dollar budget and this person has you know, essentially created something out of nothing. Is there is there one or two of those stories you could tell? Yeah, I'll just go into that now. When we, one of the things that Leaders Quest does is we have a foundation and we support 200 grassroots leaders who are trying to change the world from the bottom up. And we do it through a fellowship every year. I'm reflecting on the fact that there's one lovely story in India where a lady, the, the fellows all start working with us on a leadership program. It's, it's sort of a way by which to help them recognize the leadership inside of themselves uh, and then translate that into action that they wish to to make and take for their immediate community which to begin with is just a few families and then it expands into say 50 families and then 500 families one of the ladies had a great sense of uh, frustration that uh, and fear in fact that she wasn't able to go to the loo safely um, where she was living in in mumbai and it became apparent through her investigation that there are very few loos and toilets for women and many, many for men. And, of course, there's this huge issue around you know, going backwards and forwards, the safety and all the things that come with that embarrassment. And so she started to put together, uh, through her sense of her own leadership and a recognition of what her rights were and a sense of you know, being entrepreneurial, bringing the community together. And, and within a few years of her starting this quest she had something like fifty thousand women supporting her they marched into um or marched they campaigned and went and and sat i think outside the the offices of the the, the community the uh, mayor or yeah the mayor in, in mumbai and um ultimately through negotiation i think through through obvious sense of size and, and scope all these people all this noise the city have awarded them a huge amount of money we're talking in the region of you know, a few million dollars in order to build toilets for women across across the city which is an incredible journey from someone who literally came from nothing and never had a, a dream that she could make such a difference in such a short period of time 
and and there was and, and when she started out as a fellow you know what did we do we we just we just evoked that passion inside of her and try to give her a framework and a structure from which she could then build off herself and translate the energy into action but she didn't come with you know a body of money and and uh, and loads of resources. She just had herself. And then, you know, I think it was Martin Luther King talked about this idea of the sound of the genuine. She had this genuine authenticity, this integrity about what she wanted to do that people just found drawn Compe- to. Compelling, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and by the very nature of that, you know, I think she was voted by the BBC one of the 100 most influential women last year, Mumtaz. So it's incredible. And, and that's an example of a number, lots that I see of people who are waking up to what's possible but without the resources, just the sense of, we need to do this. So let's just start. Last question for you. What are you most excited about over the next five years, either for your career and how it continues to evolve, uh, helping leaders uh, realize these these dreams and visions, or about some organizations that you work with or a particular trend in the social enterprise world? Is there something you're particularly focused on or you're geeking out on right now? <laughs> geeking. I'm... Um... We all geek out. Um, we just we just yeah, we just don't we like do, to admit it to ourselves. Yeah, you're right. I definitely. I'm looking at, at my desk now. <laughs> so I've got some old-fashioned books here I've been reading, and I've got a bit of technology that's just arrived. I want to play with. But no, my sense of the world going forward. Well, look, I'm an optimist. Ultimately, I believe that ultimately inside of ourselves we all want a better world, and and you know things like love and compassion are what make us human. Hope. I'm also aware of the fear that there is out there in the world and the challenges that exist. From a Leaders Quest perspective, we're very excited that we're having conversations today that we couldn't have five years ago. So that's a really interesting introduction of travel. And where will that will take us, I don't know. But I can see it opening up more, more and more senior people in the world, not just inside uh, NGO and social enterprise, but in business as well, asking to have the conversation about responsibility, about stakeholder, not shareholder, about what does it mean to be embedding previous things like CSR into the heart of the organization about responsibility, purpose. You know, these are big, big conversations and people are prepared to have them. That's very exciting for me. I was caught by the COP21, you know, the, up in, down in Paris uh, last year and the climate change. What happened there? Now, there'll be lots of people who think, ah, oh, well, it's still going to be a disaster and we're not going to end up getting the level below two degrees. But my sense of 193 countries coming together the way it did, and I've heard quite a lot from friends who were there, is really exciting for me because it opens up the opportunity for negotiation and dialogue in a variety of different levels. And, of course, there's no certainty of success. We've got to keep pushing. We've got to keep holding everyone's hand to the fire. But I think there's a momentum in some places that I'd love to be part of, and that's where I see myself heading. The Sustainable Development Goals, you know, we've got them now. There are 17 they're there, and I, I would really encourage us all to be thinking how we can work with them and how we can look at them in our own lives and the lives of the organizations we're part of because these are set things that the world is moving towards, and, uh, and I think that's very important. And if we come together, we've seen if we come together, we can shift things, and together we are stronger. I know it's a cliche, but I absolutely believe it. So things like partnership and collaboration and cooperation, those things, easy to say, tough to do, and that's why it always comes back to oneself. Maybe that's my last thing I'll say, Stephen. I, I really, truly appreciate uh, hearing a you know a voice of positiveness and um, optimism, you know, oh, especially you. in in the days of ISIS and the days of yeah of you know uh, it's a hard and frightening world, at the moment, but yeah. it's there's lots of crack, lots of great things. But I see it the whole time. I've spent time with people in in 
the Middle East, in, across India and Africa and, and elsewhere in the world. And I'm heartened, I'm struck by how many lights there are going on, even in, in times of, you know, seemingly dark areas. But it all comes down to, I think, the fundamental, which is about, if I'm going to be involved in, in creating change, I've got to look at myself first. I've got to be able to really look into myself and be prepared to have that conversation. Because if I don't, for myself, how can I possibly do it in the world? Thank you so much for that reminder today. This has been a fantastic conversation and thank you for your time. Stephen, delighted. Thanks so much for making the time too. I look forward to catching up and speaking again in the coming weeks and months. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 